Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Francis J. Bremer. Frank is Professor Emeritus of History at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books on transatlantic Puritanism, and he's the coordinator of New England Beginnings, a partnership between various institutions and academics formed to commemorate the cultures that shaped New England 400 years ago. Frank has won many prizes for his work, and it's just a delight to have him on the show today. We're going to be talking about Frank's new book, One Small Candle, The Plymouth Puritans and the Beginning of English New England, a book just published by Oxford University Press. Frank, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here, Crawford. Well, Frank, we very much appreciate your time and you've written this really quite extraordinary book, uh, One Small Candle, that in, in some respects pulls together a huge amount of the writing you've done over the course of your career. But before we talk about the book, could you tell us something about yourself? Yeah, um, I first became interested in really theology and thus in religious history way back when I was uh, an undergraduate at Fordham University in the 1960s. And really ever since, uh, I've become interested in Puritans and Puritanism and have been working in that field uh, for well over 50 years now. Uh, I early on became convinced that the way to understand American Puritanism was to place it in a broader context. And so really as far as long ago as uh, the late 60s, I was trying to understand American Puritan history uh, as part of, of British history. And I was fortunate through some fellowships to have opportunities to uh, spend a little bit of time at uh, Cambridge University, where I uh, met and befriended uh, John Morrow and, and Pat Collinson, and then later at, at, at Oxford, uh, where I met and befriended uh, Dermot McCulloch. And of course, not only these people, and I'm not trying to name drop, but but by being in that environment, I, I met a lot of the uh, really brilliant scholars who were at the time their students and who have since contributed so much to our knowledge. And I've continued that and continue, well, up until, of course, the past year, uh, was generally able to go back to the British Isles at least once a year uh, to do research, to talk with people, to give papers. Uh, and of course, as you all know, uh, you played a role in, in helping me get a fellowship to be at Trinity Dublin for a while. And then uh, I've been at Queen's uh, thanks to your invitation. So that sort of perspective ha- has shaped a lot of my work. What I found though, uh, is that as time has gone on, I've become more and more cognizant of how I made assumptions early in my career that maybe don't necessarily hold water. And so probably for about the last 
20 years, I've been going back and, and looking at various things. Um, uh, one of the standard interpretations, which, which still holds with a lot of people about American Puritanism is that every church required uh, a potential member to give a conversion narrative uh, as a test of their, their faith. Uh, in looking at this, I found that this was actually based really on only one or two church records and that those were subject to different interpretations. And, and what I found is that actually these testaments of faith were as much a means whereby people who believed were able to share their experience with others as a form of proselytization, essentially. Uh, and this led me to to rethink what we assumed about the um, the role of the laity in shaping Puritanism, uh, and particularly in in congregational circles. Uh, another thing, I, I fell into the practice which many people had of, of sort of assuming that New England history was sort of Boston writ large. I mean, so much of the material we have to look at American Puritanism comes from clergymen in and around Boston. Uh, and so I tried to force myself to, to look elsewhere. And by focusing on John Davenport and the New Haven colony, I showed a different perspective on what Puritanism was. And in general, uh, I tended to focus in, in recent years on showing what's really the variety of Puritanism, that, that even within what you might call the, uh, the establishment, you, you have differences between a John Cotton, a John Davenport, a Thomas Hooker on the political side between a John Winthrop, a Thomas Studley and, and so forth. And trying to, to direct more attention to the fact that, uh, this isn't a monolithic system. This isn't a single New England mind. There are many different people working within a broad area of agreement. Um, and then really the most recent thing that I've completed in One Small Candle is I had bought into the idea, partially promoted by people who thought that Boston was the center of the Puritan universe, that uh, Plymouth was a relatively insignificant colony. And yet, as I was trying to get work done on uh, preparing for 2020, which was the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower and the establishment of the Plymouth colony, I became more and more convinced that the Plymouth story is, is a, a very important one and one that had been largely neglected. Uh, so that sort of brings me up to the present and maybe later we can talk about, you know, what comes in the future. But uh, that that's what I've been doing and, and why I've been doing it. Well, fantastic. So today we're talking about One Small Candle, the Plymouth Puritans and the beginning of English uh, New England, just published by Oxford University Press. In a nutshell, Frank, what is this most recent book about? I think there are um, at least two major points that I try to develop in the book. <clears throat> One is, uh, as the, the title implies, that the Plymouth colony was critically important in the shaping of the Massachusetts 
colonies, religious institutions, that uh, it was Plymouth emissaries who went to Salem and Boston in 1629-1630, who basically taught the Puritans in Massachusetts how to organize their own churches, how to create a religious community outside of the traditional parishes that they had come from. And so uh, I think this does play a critical role in the shaping of the rest of the New England. The other thing that I thought uh, that I tried to do in this book is to reintroduce the importance of religion in the story. Now, that's implicit in what I just said about shaping Massachusetts religious institutions. But the fact is, there have been a lot of books, many good books that have come out in the last couple of years dealing with the Pilgrims, the Plymouth, the Mayflower, etc. They tend to focus on political issues. They tend to focus on social issues. Um, religion really wasn't there. And, and trying to gain an appreciation for the religion of the people commonly referred to as, as pilgrims uh, was very important to me. And, and I believe that the nature of that religious story was also important because this was uh, a religious community that was directed basically by lay people. And and this spilled out from my previous book, one that appeared in your series on the lay role and the shaping of, of, of Puritanism. You know, John Robinson, who was the pastor of the Pilgrims, uh, did not actually come over. Originally, a majority of the congregation uh, that came to Plymouth, they had been based in Leiden for basically a dozen years. Um, the majority of them were not able to come in 1620, and so John Robinson stayed behind. And William Brewster, who was the lay elder, is the person who conducted religious services for, for the colonists. Because Robinson never was able to come over, for most of the 1620s, the congregation did not have an actual pastor. And so it was the elder William Brewster who was responsible for leading the congregation in prayers, singing of psalms, preaching, etc. Uh, it was deacons such as Robert Cushman and Samuel Fuller who helped to tell others about the story. Um, and, and so those were some of the critical things that I, that I wanted to convey in, in writing this book. So you mentioned there, Frank, the name of, of, of William Brewster, who becomes this really dominant figure in the early years of Plymouth and really the individual, I suppose, perhaps I was going to say perhaps more than any other, that's perhaps an exaggeration, but certainly a central figure who holds the community together by performing some very important social functions related to the congregation. Who was he and how did he come to adopt the kinds of religious practice that the congregation pursued in Leiden and then which were transplanted into the new world, so-called? Well, William Brewster um, grew up the son of a man who was the <clears throat> in charge of the Archbishop of York's manor house in, in Scrooby on the great road connecting London and Scotland. And he was able to go to Cambridge, where he spent a couple of years, and then he was hired 
by William Davison, uh, who was one of the leading diplomats, if you want, or uh, leaders of the Elizabethan government. And, and William Davison is often neglected because his end wasn't very good. I mean, he, he was the one who uh, delivered or sent off the execution warrant signed by Queen Elizabeth for the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. And when she decided that she wanted to wipe her hands of some of the responsibility, uh, Davison was blamed for sending it too early. He ended up in the tower and, and, and disgraced. But he was one of the principal secretaries of state for a time, and he was an, an emissary uh, to the Dutch. And he hired William Brewster, and Brewster accompanying him uh, particularly to the Netherlands, where he met people that would be of help to the congregation later on. Um, he also was probably influenced some um, by Davison's religious views. Uh, figuring out some of this is, is a little bit difficult, but certainly we know that, that Brewster had contacts with Puritan uh, Puritans at Cambridge. Uh, maybe his inclinations drew him to Davison. Uh, but in the Netherlands, uh, we know Davison had contacts with some of the exiled uh, Puritan leaders and so forth. And, and so uh, Brewster found sort of some comfort there. Now, when Davison was disgraced, Brewster eventually went back to Scrooby. Uh, his father died. He took over his father's responsibilities. And his Puritan instincts were evident in some of the clergy that he searched out to listen to. Uh, he sheltered in his home in the manor house uh, like-minded people from the area who initially were what the authorities would call a conventicle. They were a group of people gathered together to repeat sermons that they had heard, to share their religious views, to, to pray and sing psalms together. Uh, eventually they formed a separatist congregation. They, they separated from their parish churches. They organized themselves by covenant into a congregation. Uh, and that, of course, meant that they were breaking the law. Uh, and they began to be persecuted uh, to degrees. And as the regime changes in England from Elizabeth to James I became more uh, focused on, on suppressing religious nonconformity, uh, they decided to leave. And they, they traveled first to the Netherlands, where they spent uh, initially uh, a little bit of time in Amsterdam, where the, the first church was a separatist congregation. And then they moved on to Leiden, where uh, Brewster had um, connections and helped them to get uh, permission to settle there. So he's, he's someone who was more formally educated than most of the way pilgrims. Uh, he was someone who had a lot of contacts, who thought a lot. One of the things that, that I hadn't even been fully aware of before starting to write this book is that when William Brewster dies, he has a personal library of over 400 books. Uh, it's extraordinary. And he's not the only one with a lot of books in Plymouth, but he, he clearly was 
reading, thinking about religious matters. Uh, when in Leiden, he helped to create what became known as the Pilgrim Press, where they published some Puritan works of, uh, of John Robinson, of William Ames, of William Perkins, and so forth. So he had a lot of different things in his background when, when he comes to America. And I think that many of the characteristics that I've alluded to, many of the character traits that he has, uh, helped him in guiding the congregation. One of the things that struck me about the book, Frank, was the way in which circumstances that were almost contingent in Brewster's family home in Scrooby were, in a sense, theologized and then were incorporated into the practice of the separatist church in the Netherlands, then exported to the New World uh, and, and became there the way in which that community organized itself for worship. But in a sense, it was it was all quite contingent in its origins, wasn't it? I think so. And and one of the things that um, I talk about in the book, and and have even been more focused on uh, since the book was written and published, as I've been talking to other people and so forth, is that just as earlier I said that there's a great variety in Puritanism. There's a variety in separatism, and, and we, too many times historians and popular authors tend to make this sharp distinction between Puritans and separatists. And actually, uh, within separatism, there's a broad range, and it, and ideas are shaped by, uh, contingency to some degree, and, and by experiences. Uh, when the pilgrims uh, first stayed in Amsterdam. Uh, they encountered uh, a separatist church, which was very extreme and particularly extreme in terms of not having anything to do with anyone who had any affiliation with the established church of England, uh, who had served in the established church of England. And there, there, Focus was leading that church into various fissures, which is one of the reasons why the, the Scrooby group moved on to Leiden. But then in Leiden, they, they, they probably would have to be considered strict separatists themselves when they get to Leiden. But then there are encounters, uh, in a, what's almost serendipity. Uh, there's a period when, uh, Robinson and Bruce and Bradford, when the pilgrims are in Leiden, where William Ames shows up in Leiden for a brief period. Uh, Thomas Parker shows up. Henry Jacob shows up. And so here you have these three very prominent Puritan leaders, uh, English Puritan leaders, who are not separatists, who are there and who interact with Robinson and the congregation. And you also have a, another group of English and Scottish uh, residents in Leiden, largely merchants, who have their own non-separatist reformed church led initially by uh, Robert Dury and then by Hugh Goodyear. And, and so Brewster and Robinson 
interact with these people. They interact with some of the people at the University of Leiden, which was one of the leading uh, centers of, of learning and study uh, in Europe. And incidentally, where uh, Jacob Arminius had been established. Um, Arminius only died uh, within a year or so after the, the pilgrims arrived in Leiden. So they begin to open up. And, and John Robinson sort of puts this best as a critique of other Protestants, but also himself. And this is paraphrasing it, but he says, you know, Luther had some great ideas and we, we thank Luther for his insight. But, but the problem is that Lutherans have come to think that there's no truth beyond Luther. Uh, and so they reject Calvin and, and the Calvinists are the same. They, they think that Calvin had the last word. And yet it's wrong for us to assume that after so many centuries of anti-Christian darkness, that the full truth would be apparent immediately. And so we should be open to further light, to dialogue, to listening to other people uh, and not accepting everything, but nevertheless sort of being open. And so, I mean, these are some of the ways in which I think the experiences of these people uh, help to give a peculiar, a particular cast to their, their life. And by the time they leave in 1620, they are willing to extend dialogue to people who still are members of the Church of England if their faith is proper. And without that shift from a strict separatism to what some have called a semi-separatism, you would not have been able to have the type of dialogue between the Plymouth leaders and those of Massachusetts that eventually shapes Massachusetts Puritanism. It's interesting, Frank, that you used the word dialogue there because that the idea of conversation or exchange of ideas is really at the heart of this book, isn't it? You you emphasise, uh, as you describe the worship practice of this congregation on both sides of the Atlantic, how this idea of conversation or prophesying or, or lay preaching um, is, is very much at the heart of the way it sees itself. So could, could you explain to us what is this idea of prophesying? Who was involved in it? Could women be involved in prophesying? And is that one of the ways that the congregation, 3,000 miles away from the ministry of John Robinson, could nevertheless continue to search out that new light that he was speaking about? Definitely. Um, I think the starting place is that these are all people of the book. They, they all believe that God's truth is to be found in scripture and that every person should directly confront God's truth. And, and this is coincidentally one of the reasons why these people place such a strong value on literacy. Everyone, uh, and in Massachusetts, it'll be legislated whether male or female, whether, uh, servant or free person, uh, whether slave or not should be taught how to read so that they can encounter the Bible. Now, if you are among God's elect, the Holy Spirit will guide you in your understanding of what you're reading in the scripture. And while you can't be sure that you 
know exactly what the truth is. You can gain insights from the scripture through the guidance of the spirit. And then you want to share that. And so ordinary lay people would have the opportunity in the congregation in Leiden and then in the congregation in, in Plymouth and later in Massachusetts of either asking questions of whoever delivered a sermon to get clarification of the point or offering their own perspective on the particular passage of scripture, which is, is, is being presented. Um, you have to do this with humility. Um, but this is, this is encouraged because any individual can gain some insight of, through the spirit that can enlighten others. And, and so you share that with others. I might add in, in this context, and I don't develop it much in the book. One of the things, uh, I talked earlier. I'm sorry if I'm getting discursive, but, uh, I, I talked earlier about how I, I've often reevaluated my thinking. When I was starting out in this field, I came across books, Alan Simpson's Puritanism in Old and New England, articles, James McClear's The Heart of New England Rent, which basically presented Quakerism as part of the broader Puritan movement. And I dismissed it as most people did. I said, how, how can you say the Quakers and Puritans are the same? Puritans hung Quakers for heaven's sake. I'm becoming more attuned to the fact that if you focus on lay prophesying and discussions, you're not that far off from the Quaker meeting. What's different is that the Quakers are talking about the direct inspiration of the spirit from the inner light without being mediated through the reading of the scripture. But the idea that you can have a sense of what God means. And you can be wrong, so you have to be humble. So you refer to this as a conviction, not a truth. Uh, and it has to be tested against the convictions of other people. I see a lot of that as being rooted in conventicles and lay prophesying in the early part of the Puritan movement. Mm. So we fast forward after a horrible journey across the Atlantic, Brewster and the other colonists arrive in Plymouth. They begin to erect a meeting house. You describe it as a kind of fort, a fortified, mm -hmm. um, some kind of fortified structure. Um, they likely have a little kind of preaching table in it. That's where they march out. And you, you, you describe vividly the way in which, you know, the, the, the drum would beat and they would, they would march in ranks, social ranks, three abreast, into this meeting house, and, and, and there they would convene for worship. And you also describe, there's a wonderful passage where, where you describe the way in which they begin to offer God thanks for his provision, security, life itself, um, uh, uh, after those first um, um, few months. And the appearance then of another local population who are also worshipping a creator, also giving that creator thanks for his goodness and generosity. How did those two communities interact with one another? 
Yeah. Well, the the background for this is the fact that for decades prior to the arrival of the Mayflower, Europeans, uh, French, primarily English, ships had sailed along the coast of New England. They had been uh, fishing, drying their fish on the land. They had been conducting trade in order to get furs from the European, uh, from the native population. And through the contacts with Europeans, disease spread to the indigenous populations, particularly along the coast. Um, we're not even totally sure as to what this was. Some people talk about smallpox. There are other technical scientific ideas. But what is clear is that these were what we would call virgin soil epidemics. They were pathogens that were introduced into the native population that they had no prior experience of and thus no natural immunity for. And the results were devastating uh, with up to 90 percent of some native communities dying within a few years. We know that about two years before the arrival of uh, the Mayflower, uh, the, the actual site on which the pilgrims was settled was a native village called Patuxet. It was a thriving village with hundreds of natives. When the Mayflower entered the harbor in 1620, there was no one there. Uh, virtually all had died. The survivors had moved on to, to jo- join with other tribes. So one of the th- factors that's critical in determining the relation between the groups is that uh, the coastal native tribes have been decimated. And these are the people that the pilgrims are first going to come in contact with. Now, populations that have suffered greatly. The native population, which was uh, the the people that we call the Wampanoags, uh, these were uh, a people who had been in conflict of sorts with some of the interior tribes, particularly the a tribe known as the Narragansetts. And the Narragansetts, because they were further away from the coast than the initial exposure, had not suffered significantly. And they were looking to expand into Wampanoag territory. Although we have to be very careful here because the boundaries between various native peoples are much more fluid than, you know, we're accustomed to thinking of when we think of nations and, and so forth. But at any rate, the leader uh, titled the Massasoit, his actual name seems to have been Osamequin, uh, of the Wampanoags, decided that these newcomers, who didn't appear terribly threatening, uh, could be useful because of their possession of guns and so forth in protecting him and his people against the Narragansetts. And the pilgrims realized that they would be in, in terrible shape if they were in conflict with the Wampanoags and that they needed help in terms of food and, and instruction and so forth. So early on, there is a what is essentially a, 
an alliance formed in which the two sides agree to help one another as they can. And that treaty, if you want to call it that, uh, will be effective in preserving peace between the Plymouth, the English colonists in Plymouth and the Wampanoags for about 50 years. Uh, there will be conflicts with other native peoples it, for various reasons, but, but there is that, uh, contact. And so we get, uh, some of the members of the native community, uh, Somerset, Tisquantum, whom often referred to as Squanto, who will help the English adapt to the new world and so forth. And there's, there's generally good relations. In 1621, in the fall, the English have had a good harvest. They decide to celebrate that by giving thanks to God. Uh, and we have what is called the first Thanksgiving. Uh, natives noticing what was happening, perhaps. We don't know that they were specifically invited. Show up. And at that point, at least, are invited to share in the festivities, which go on for a number of days. And I think there is, as you alluded to, a realization on, on both sides that what we gather from the land is a gift from God and we need to give thanks for it. Uh, and one of the things I do talk about in the book and I've talked about in, in various opinion pieces and interviews uh, in this past year is that, you know, this was a religious Thanksgiving. Uh, there are those who want to see it as entirely secular harvest festival and whatnot. There's a long tradition of pilgrims, Protestants in general, Christians in general, of recognizing that the, the gifts of the earth are the things of God and, and, and giving thanks to God, just as there are fast days to rid oneself of sins that might be bringing affliction. Um, and while the fall 1621 feast is often referred to as the first Thanksgiving, it's not really that. I mean, I, I, you know, I often tell people the, the first real pilgrim Thanksgiving is when after months crowded in a ship crossing the Atlantic with little to eat, with inadequate water, with storms, they get to Cape Cod and, and some of them get off the boat and they fall down on their knees and they say, thank God we finally made it. Uh, and, and they literally were thanking God because there were a lot of voyages across the Atlantic at that time that never reach the New World. Um, you know, there, there's one that I talked about in the book just a few years earlier, a group of separatists, many of them from the Amsterdam First Church, uh, had sailed to settle in Virginia in, in 1618, and, and 80% of the passengers on the ship died before they reached the New World. And the pilgrims knew about this. And so they, they were very willing to acknowledge that the fact that they made it was due to God. And so they gave thanks. Mm. Well, Frank, it'd be wonderful to talk to you for an hour or more uh, about this really extraordinary new book, One Small Candle, The Plymouth Puritans uh, and the Beginning of English New England, just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a really It's a really remarkable book. And uh, I, I hope it's as successful as it deserves to be. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I have uh, 
two real projects. Um, one is to look further into the role of women in the shaping of Puritanism and, and not um, the, the highlighted challengers like Anne Hutchinson and Mary Dyer, although they'll play a part in it, but the ordinary women who, who did on occasion prophesy, who uh, in England in the 1640s became preachers uh, who helped to form churches. Uh, one of the things I find interesting is that the covenant signers or the covenant degreeers in a lot of churches uh, included women. Uh, and the assumption is that, that as members, they might have had a role in the choosing of ministers. So there are a lot of questions that I'm looking at there. And I'm also looking at, I, I have a general project, which I roughly refer to as, you know, living in a city on a hill. Uh, when you have people who don't agree on everything, how do they manage to live with a sense of civility and cooperation and, and, and so forth uh, in the New England communities? And that, that should, all that should keep me busy for quite a while. Well, that's my, that's my Christmas list for next year, I think. Um, that's great, Frank. Listen, thanks for writing this book, One Small Candle, and thanks for coming on to the show today and being willing to talk about it. It's just been great to have you. Very glad to have been here. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.